um, there's times in our marriage where we just have to sit back and just kind of look in awe at my stupidity. We've got like, you know, the top five list of stupidest moments. Uh, Kyle shared a moment last week where he uh, freaked out during his wife's labor. So in the spirit of self-deprecating humor, because that's what makes the world go round, I thought I'd tell you one of my uh, top maybe five, maybe top five ever in our marriage, stupid thing I've ever done. So about three years ago or so, it is the week before my wife's 30th birthday. Now, 30 is kind of a big birthday, okay? Uh, I need some context here. Polly's mom is the ultimate gift giver. Uh, my mother-in-law, she'll outgift any of you. And that's fine. I just got big shoes to, feel, to fill. I will never uh, compete with her. So mom is a huge gift giver. I am in seminary. Uh, so uh, I'm living in Columbia, but at the time I'm driving to St. Louis, which is two hours. Uh, and that means every day I have class, not every day, about three days a week I have class at 8 a.m., so I have to get up at like 5.30 in the morning, super early. This is a part in the semester where I'm super stressed, have a lot of tests going on. Oh, by the way, we have a year and a half year old, is that right? A daughter who's a year and a half who just does not sleep. So two days before her birthday, I go, huh, I feel like something's coming up. Oh, yeah, it's my wife's birthday. I should probably do something for her. So my mind starts going, okay, you know what I'm really good at? I'm good at planning surprise parties. That's what I'll do. I'll contact some of her friends, make it a big surprise. She'll think we're doing one thing, and then, you know, big party surprise. Yay, I'm good at that. So a day passes. I get that done. And then the day before her birthday, it's in the morning. I'm at school. I'm like, you know, I should probably get her something, right? It's her birthday. I should get her a present. So I go into research mode. I do some research for about 10 minutes. I see something on Amazon. Perfect. She's going to love it. Uh, I got Amazon Prime, but I need it to be there. So, yeah, I'll pay $5, get it shipped to our doorstep. Boom. It's there that night. It's in the nice brown box. Polly sends me a text. Oh, hey, there's a box here. What's this? Oh, I don't know. Bring it in. <laughs> yeah, great. All right. It's her birthday present. So, the morning of her birthday, I get up at 5, try to eat some breakfast before I leave. She kind of stumbles in, not looking her best, uh, meaning she got about an hour and a half of sleep because of our daughter. So, she's tired. She's cranky, but it's her birthday. I'm like, happy birthday, big 3 0. Woo! She's like, ah, thanks. I got you a present. And I hand her this box, not wrapped. <laughs> All the girls in there go, oh, he didn't wrap it. Oh, no. Yeah, stupid, I know. So, not wrapped, but I give it to her. It's her birthday. Yay, surprise. So she kind of, you know, wrestles with that weird tape and takes forever and pulls. Didn't get scissors, of course. You have to use your hands. Uh, but finally, opens it up. Looks in there. Oh, thanks. You got me eyeshadow. Yay, eyeshadow. Oh, thanks. All right, babe. Well, have a good day. I'll see you. Okay, bye. So she leaves. I get ready to walk out the door. She comes back in. She goes, I'm sorry. I just have to say this. You got me eyeshadow. Oh, no. Oh, what have I done? What have I done? Well, guys, here's the deal. When I know now that I did not know, Bailey's laughing. <laughs> Eyeshadow is the equivalent of giving a dude Old Spice deodorant. That's not a joke. I've confirmed this with multiple women. They're all shaking their heads. I gave my wife the equivalent of deodorant for her 30th birthday. Yes, clap it up. Thank you, Nick Harley. That's right. God bless me, I was trying, but I mean, I was just so stupid, I had no idea. 
Uh, we laugh about it. It's so great, but I was so stupid. I didn't know. Now, why do I tell that story? Well, here's why. The last few weeks, we've been walking through the Old Testament, and we've been looking at God's chosen people called the Israelites. And so tonight, what we're going to be asking ourselves is how could these Israelites, these group of people who God plucked from Egypt, from slavery, saved and brought them to the cusp of the promised land, how could they be so stupid? So, here's where we left off. Last week, they're at the cusp of the wilderness. Sorry, they're at the cusp of the promised land. They're about ready to walk into it. Now, the promised land is where modern-day Israel is right now. And it's the area of land that God told his people that he was going to give to them to live in. And while they were living in the land, they were to bless the people around them. They were to make life better for others. They were to help people be refreshed and encouraged and enjoy living. You see, these people who were living around the Israelites, as they saw them, as they lived with them, as they talked with them and experienced relationship with them, they were supposed to get a picture of who God was and what he was like and how good and loving he is and how worthy of worship he is. This one God, not multiple gods, but just this one God. So, they're on the edge of the promised land, getting ready to walk over, and God tells Israel, okay, look, this is how you be a blessing. You love me with all your heart. You fear me. You serve me by obeying my commandments. You see, when God told Israel all these things, he wanted them to fear him and to love him and to serve him. It was an invitation to be with him. He says, come on, come with me. It was almost like a dinner invitation. God's having a dinner party. Come feast with me. Be with me. This is how you're going to be a blessing. Enjoy my company. Well, in a minute, we're going to be reading from the book of Ezekiel. He's an Old Testament prophet. And this takes place 600 years after Israel goes into the promised land. Okay? So we'll get there. But during this 600 years, God's people, Israel, they were like a punk teenager. They wanted nothing to do with their parents. They thought it was stupid to get invited to a family dinner, and they went off and hung out with their friends. They wanted to do their own thing. They were too cool. They thought they knew it all. They did not need God. You see, instead of blessing these nations, they were blending with these nations. So when they crossed over in the promised land, here's a couple examples. They crossed over in the promised land. They were supposed to drive out these sinful people who were living there. But instead, they found it easier to cohabitate with them, to let them stay there, to intermingle and intermarry. And that's not necessarily a problem, but here's the problem. Rather than change the people around them, they were changed by the people. You know, they were blending. You've got to ask, how could they be so stupid? Right, fast forward a couple hundred years later, God raised up a king now to rule over the people. Okay? So they've got kings around them. One of the most famous kings in Israel's history is named David. He was a great guy, did a lot of great things, was a man after God's own heart, but he was pretty stupid too. He had sex with another man's wife, and to cover it up, he murdered the husband. Pretty stupid. His son Solomon wasn't much better. You see, Solomon, okay, he built God's temple, which is a big deal. It took seven years. God's temple is God's self-proclaimed, self-chosen address here on earth. You're going to mail a letter to God, 
In the Old Testament, you're mailing it to the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? And so this was supposed to be a place where God's people could find rest and healing and mercy and cleansing from their sin because they're living in a world that is an enemy territory infested by sin. And this is a safe haven. And it's supposed to be a place where you can, oh, thank goodness. But it was anything but that, as we'll see in just a second. Solomon built the temple in seven years. You know what he did for his own house? He spent double the time, double the manpower, and double the money on it. Probably not a good sign. Seven years on the temple, about 14 on his own house. Let's add one more thing to it. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Okay? Not a good thing. Stupid move on Solomon's part. He's supposed to be representing God to the people. He's supposed to show the people what it is like to have a relationship with God. 300 wives, 700 concubines, stupid move. Okay? His son, Rehoboam, gets into a fight with another guy, Jeroboam. Long story short, civil war within Israel. And here's where it gets a little confusing. The kingdom splits. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. So sometimes when you hear the word Israel, it's both peoples. Sometimes, like in the book of Isaiah, you hear Israel, it's just the northern kingdom. The important part is now, there's two kingdoms. This is a big deal, because remember, God is supposed to bless these nations, supposed to be united people who are loving and serving the nations. But if I'm the nations, I'm going, wait a minute. You know, I don't, who's who? You claim to be the true people, but you claim to be the true people. It doesn't sound like you guys are any different from anything I've ever heard. I don't want your God. doesn't sound like he's worth my time. doesn't sound like he's worthy of my worship. How could they be so stupid? You know, what, what's God supposed to do with this stubborn, rebellious son, Israel, the whole people? Well, you see, this family dinner has been extended to Israel for 600 years. It's been an open invite. But what God finally decides to do after years and years, 600 years of stubbornness, is he kicks them out. He changes the locks on the house, and he tells them, you are no longer welcome here. The Bible refers to this as the exile. This people of Israel, who are referred to as Judah now, they were kicked out of the land. God used a ruler named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of Babylon. He came into Jerusalem, the capital city, destroyed that temple, picked up the people, moved them north to Babylon. Enter Ezekiel. Enter Ezekiel. He is one of these citizens of Israel that was part of the exiles in Babylon. And he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Now, a prophet, they were essentially the cops of Israel. Okay, they were the authorized voice of the Lord who told the people the ways in which they were failing to live out their calling to be a blessing to the nations. They pleaded with the people for hundreds of years, stop blending, stop that, return to God, go back to dinner, bless the nations, stop blending. And what Ezekiel's doing in these verses we're about to read is he is appealing to these people who are in Babylon right now. He's appealing to them, pleading with them, grabbing them by the lapel and saying, look, You've got to listen to me. This is why we were kicked out. And here's how he does it. He takes them back a few years to when the temple was still standing. He gets a video tour from God. And he takes the people on this video tour through the formerly existing rooms of God's temple. Now, as we look at this footage and hear this footage, try and figure out why might have God 
exiled the people. We're going to pick it up in chapter 8, starting in verse 7. And he, this is God, God brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in. See the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in, and I saw, and there, engraved on the wall all around, was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Why did God exile Israel? You know, what did that video crew catch? Well, lots of things, but two specifically in these verses we see. Number one, Israel was apathetic about their sin. They were apathetic about their sin. You hear this language in these verses of committing and doing. And if you read a little bit, a larger section, this is repeated over and over again. That's Hebrew for bolding and underlining. They were continually doing these abominable acts. This wasn't a, oops, I made a mistake. Let me turn the other way. This was, breaks are off and we're going for it. Idolatry. They don't care anything about fearing and loving and serving the Lord. They instead are bowing down literally to idols. They don't care. You know, this weekend I was driving somewhere and was thinking about this sermon and uh, I don't often surf the radio, uh, but when I do, I hear Kyle's favorite song this weekend. It's Bad Blood by Taylor Swift. It's his favorite song, loves it. Um, I'm going to be tempted to sing the lyrics. I'm going to try not to. But I heard a lyric in this song. It was a perfect picture of Israel. I'm going to have to sing it. Band-aids don't fix bullet holes. You say sorry just for show. So there you go. Band-aids don't fix bullet holes. You say sorry just for show. Band-aids don't fix bullet holes. You see, Israel's bleeding out. They've got a gunshot wound. And they're trying to put a band-aid over it. That's ridiculous. They don't get how bad the problem is. You, know, you say sorry just for show. This is exactly what Israel's doing. So God set up a way. If Israel wanted to apologize, they would do what's called an animal sacrifice. So they would take a certain animal to the priest. The priest would sacrifice it before God. And they were supposed to do this with a repentant heart, a truly sorry heart. But at this time... Israel's just going through the motions. They could care less. They're going, yeah, here's my ram. Here's my goat. Yeah, let's get it over with. Blah, blah, blah. Yes, forgive my sins. Blah. Great, okay. Woo, glad I got that over with. They don't care. It's all a show. So Israel was apathetic about their sin. The other thing that that video crew caught in those verses was the fact that Israel was hiding their sin. Let's go back to verse 12. Then God said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. See, they're hiding their sin. They are ashamed and guilty of what they might see. And they're stupid enough to think that they can hide it from God. You know, I wonder if we sent a camera crew into your hearts, what footage would we see? What would we see going on underneath in the, deep, in the dark parts of your soul? You know, when I say sin, you sin is something other than God that we're craving. Like we have 
to have it. This is something besides God that we just can't live without. We are restless. We wake up and we think about it. We schedule our day around it. We wonder, what is this thing going to be that's going to make me happy? You know, sin is something that if it was taken away from us, we'd be left asking the question, well, now what? Now, I thought I knew who I was, but this is gone. Now what? You know, what, what sins are you apathetic about? You know, could you care less if you're messing around with your girlfriend or boyfriend? You know, maybe you tell yourselves the rationale is, well, we've been going out for so long. We love each other. We know we're going to get married. It's fine. But it's not fine. You know, is having the ideal body, is that just too much of an allure for you to care? Are the looks you get from guys just too powerful? Are the praise that you are getting from your roommates and friends just too good to let go of? You know, maybe it's having the latest iPhone or being the smartest person in the room or having the most decorated resume. You know, whatever it is, you know, have you settled in your heart that this thing, that's worth my time, that's worth my effort, that's worth my money. What is it? What is it that you're just kind of, yeah, that's what it is. I mean, how, how could we be so stupid? Those sins are an abomination in God's sight. You know, what sins would the camera show that we're hiding? You know, what have we locked away in these dark rooms of our hearts. Maybe we kind of talk about them generically, but if we really showed people how far back the room went, how far below the staircase went, we would be ashamed. We would be shocked. You know, do you look at pornography consistently at two in the morning? You think your roommates have gone to bed, nobody's around. Maybe you tell yourself, look, I, I need to do it to relieve stress. I need a study break. Are you guilty from cheating on a midterm? Maybe this last round, maybe a couple years ago. Maybe you told yourself, look at the time. Everybody's cheating. That's how people get good grades. And I, I've got to maintain a scholarship. If I don't get a certain GPA, then I'm going to get kicked out of school. I'm going to lose my scholarship. So I had to do it. But now you're kind of rethinking the decision and you're ashamed of it. You feel the weight of it. You know, are you hiding all the things you've said behind your roommate's back or are you lying to your parents about how you're spending the money they're giving you for school? You know, those, those sins God can see. No matter how far down the staircase goes, no matter how far back the room goes, God sees it. I mean, how could we be so stupid? You know, maybe the deeper question, I for sure ask myself this, I feel this. We're really wondering, when we're apathetic about our sin, when we hide our sin, we're really wondering, is there still a spot at the table for me? Is there still a spot at the dinner table for me? Let me tell you another story of something I did when I was a kid in all my seventh grade wisdom here. Uh, my best friend in middle school, his name was Tyler Boroviak. Uh, his family was like my second family. We were attached at the hip. Uh, I would always go over to his house after school. We'd ride bikes around. We'd play basketball together. But most importantly, we loved baseball cards. Anybody else in here collect baseball cards, love them, used to? Yes. One person, two for three. Yes. Band of Brother, four. Let's talk about it after this. Anyway, so when I collected, it was the steroid era. Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa are in their home run race. So it's awesome. I'm loving it. Here's my problem. 
I'm on my own. My mom and my dad, they could have cared less about this. They thought it was stupid. They did not bankroll me at all. So I'm scraping every penny and quarter and dollar I get for my allowance to buy these baseball cards. Tyler's parents, the Baroviaks, they're all in. And boy, their parents are bankrolling him. They would literally come. I'd come over after school. I'd have two packs of cards. Yay, my two packs. They got 200 boxes of cards. So like, it'd take me five seconds to open mine. They're like two hours later. I'm like, okay, you guys done yet? So they had a ton more cards. So I was a little bit envious. But one day after school, I open a card, and lo and behold, I get a Mark McGuire card. Yes, he's going to be the home run king. This is a super rare card, super rare. Uh, it's 10 bucks. That's a big deal for me. Well, five minutes later, my buddy Tyler, I hear like some commotion. It's like Christmas morning, people just going into these things. I hear some commotion over here. My buddy Tyler got a $60 Mark McGuire card. Oh, my God. Yay, Tyler. So happy for you. Good job. So in all the commotion, we're so excited about this, we realize we're late for basketball practice. So Tyler hands me the card. He put it in this little clear plastic sleeve and said, hey, man, can you go put this in my room? And my bag is in there for basketball. Can you get it? And then we'll go. I said, sure. So I run into his room. And I stop. Yep. 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 Put it in my back pocket. Get his stuff, and we go. Three days later, I show up to school. In my mind, three days is enough time to, for them to either forget about the fact that he lost their card, uh, forget about the fact that maybe they think I took it. Again, I'm so stupid. I show up three days later with the same card and go, hey, guys, <laughs> guess what I found in a pack of baseball cards? This super rare $60 Mark McGuire card. And Tyler goes, you son of a... He literally said that. I can't say it. I was found out. Again, in all my wisdom as a seventh grader, he knew. And what had been happening in his house for three days is his family was having a huge fight. I didn't know this. Tyler and the rest of you as twin brothers, they knew immediately who took it. But his mom, his mom went to bat for him. His mom said, no way. No way he took it. No way he took it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I go home, and I just burst into tears because I know I've been found out. Phone rings. Mrs. Broviak. She, she lays into me. She says, Austin, I cannot believe. It wasn't the I'm mad talk. It was the I'm disappointed talk. Oh, it was the worst. <sighs> it still gets shaky right now thinking about it. She says, Austin, look, I'm not mad at you. I'm just, I'm just so disappointed. Her voice cracked a little bit. I went to bat for you. I trusted you. You know what this has done to our family in the past three days? She hung up the phone. More tears. 20 minutes later, there's a knock at my door. I open the door. It's Miss Barovia. She says, oh, she's, she's a tall lady. She's looking down at me. <laughs> she is. Um, she says, Austin, go get the card. So I... I'm a blubbering mess now still. I go get the card, and I just hang my head. Don't look her in the eye. I give it to her, and I start to close the door, and I can't. And I look up, and she's holding the door open, and she looks me right in the eyes. She says, I want you to know something. I want you to know that you are always welcome. I want you to know that you're always welcome. God 
God judged Israel for their sins and sent them into exile. But judgment is never the last line in God's story. His people always still welcome. Why do I say that? Because the book of Ezekiel doesn't stop at chapter 8. It goes on. When we get to chapter 36, God's tone switches. He moves from righteous anger in chapter 8 to now an impassioned plea. He wants his sons and his daughters back for dinner. He wants us to know that we're always welcome. See, in Ezekiel 36, God tells us three radical things that he's going to do in order to bring us back to the dinner table. Here's the first. Chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. You see, God cleanses us from our defilement. You know, we already saw how bad Israel's sins were. These were hand-picked people to show the world who he was, and yet they committed just abominable sins right in his sight, right in the temple. And yet, cleansing was available. Cleansing is available for us. We're free. We're clean. We're not dirty. We're at peace. We're acceptable. I mean, just stop and think about for that for a second. Just stop. I mean, probably some of us, we just look in the mirror and we feel dirty. We can't even look in the mirror. You know, that guilt and that shame from our sin, it just moves us to lock it away in the room, push it back into the shadows, throw it down the staircase, but God opens up the door. He shines the light in the depths and he takes a power washer and he goes to town. He cleans it out. When we return to God, we're cleansed. The second thing God will do, he's going to give us a heart transplant. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Remember Taylor Swift's song, Band-Aids Don't Fix Bullet Holes. You know, God tells us it's not enough for us just to put a Band-Aid on it. We're not good enough surgeons. We can't fix it. You know, our service on Sunday cannot make up for our sins on Saturday. There's nothing we can do about it. Only God can perform that surgery. And that surgery involves a new heart and a new spirit. Now, we're in Christianese waters here. Heart and spirit get thrown around all over the place. So let's explain it a little bit. When the exiles heard these terms, here's what they heard. A new heart is not the emotions. It's the exact opposite of what we think of. It's the mind. Okay? The exiles heard this and they knew the heart of the person is the person, the part of the person who thinks, who decides, who wills, who makes decisions. Now the new spirit, those are inner feelings, aspirations, core desires, attitudes, dispositions, motivations. You see, the sum of this promise is that thanks to God, we are now going to have the ability to think different thoughts and feel different things and want different things. Now think about how radical that is just for a second. If I tell somebody, hey, stop wanting that, what are you going to do? How do I do that? I can't do that. You know, don't think about the color red red. You can't, it's hard, you can't tell someone to stop thinking about something. But God can. God can. You know, if we've cared less 
about sleeping around or overspending on clothes or pirating music. God is the only one who can change those thoughts, those desires. And he will. He will if we let him. He will if we let him. Third and final thing we see God does to welcome us back. He puts his very own spirit within us. Verse, th- verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. For 600 years, Israel was that punk teenager never showing up to family dinner. They would rather blend than bless. And so God takes the most radical step of all. He places his very spirit inside not just the heart of an individual, but the hearts of the entire people. So now they actually have the ability to live out that mission of blessing that he requires. Now this, in the verse, it's not a lowercase s. This is an uppercase s. You know, the spirit. We, we don't have time to talk too long, but whenever you see that, that was Clem. Whenever you see that with a capital S, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Okay? So God, the Father, in the person of Jesus, the Son, has shared His Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. He shared His Spirit with us. Now, not only does that bring you and I as individuals comfort and security that we are saved and we are loved by God. It for sure does that. But what it also does is it enables us as a people, as a corporate group to live out God's mission of blessing the entire world. You see, God wants us back for dinner. God gets what he wants. He cleanses us from our sin. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit, and he places his very own spirit with a capital S inside of us, plural. So what are these promises? What does that mean for us today? Well, simply put, it means that everywhere is exile, And nowhere is exile. Everywhere is exile. And nowhere is exile. Let me explain that. So those three promises. Cleansing. New heart, new spirit. My spirit within you. These were given to a people who were hundreds of miles from their homeland. They were hyper aware of the fact that everywhere is exile. They were living in Babylon. I mean, think about this. Every meal they ate was different than they were used to. Every place they went, it wasn't familiar. They didn't know where they were going. Every person they talked to, every foreigner, it was hard to understand. They're speaking a different language. They've got a different culture. Every day, they knew for sure that they were in exile. You know what? The same is true for God's people today. The same is true for Christians today. Everywhere is exile. You see, the world we're living in right now is not our home. It's not the place that we were created for. God knows that we're not living in this world that he intended. He knows we're living in the Holiday Inn. Holiday Inn, you know, it's a hotel. Temporary. Not ideal. But it's where we're at. Everywhere's the Holiday Inn. But some of us, we don't know this is the Holiday Inn. We don't know that this is the exile. You know, we have the habit of making Holiday Inns trying to make them into permanent homes. But you know what? They make crappy homes. Alcohol. It's a fine holiday inn. I enjoy a good beer. Love IPAs. Love stouts. Love a good beer. 21. But alcohol makes a crappy home. It's a dangerous home. Now, I'm for sure talking about people who just take the brakes off and go do 21 shots on their 21st birthday and don't care. But I'm also talking to us in the room 
We're trying to toe the line a little bit. Let's just see how much I can drink without getting for sure drunk, but, you know, I'm definitely not on pure air right now, okay? If we make our home on the inside of a can, it's going to leave you, it's going to leave others hurt and devastated and unsatisfied. It makes a crappy home. You know, relationships, any sort of relationship, they're great holiday ends, they're crappy homes. I've been married to a wonderful woman for six years. God love her. If she's hearing this, she makes a crappy home. I'm a crappy home. I'm stupid. Don't make me a home. You know, if we're building our homes and relationships, whether it's romantic relationships, friendships, whatever that is, we should feel sorry for ourselves because there's so much more. I mean, think about the people that you're closest to, whether it's your family, your friends, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend. Think about what they will be like in heaven. If you think it's good now, just wait. What's it going to be like when we are all completely cleansed of sin? It's going to be amazing. Now, we're in the Holiday Inn now, but God tells us that our true home is in heaven, on this earth, but completely cleansed of sin, where we're going to live, and we're going to walk, and we're going to eat dinner with God forever. Everywhere is exile, but yet nowhere is exile. Nowhere is exile, because Jesus has shared his spirit with us. You see, yes, this Holiday Inn is temporary. Yes, it's not ideal, but guess what? Where we're at, we've got to do something about it. It's where God calls us to live out his mission of blessing. It's where God calls us to meet with him. You know, what's your holiday in? Where are you at? Maybe you're not in a relationship. Man, you really want to be. It's been years since your last boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you've never had one, and all your friends do, and you're tired of being the third wheel or the fifth wheel. You just want someone. You know, that's really hard, and I want to empathize with that. But hear me when I say you can share that heartache with God. He's there with you. He wants you to tell him about that. You know, maybe you're from pretty far away, and you're homesick. You know, you thought you had maybe found a group of friends by now. Not the first day or the first week, but, you know, it's about month three, and you were hoping to find some people you can connect with, and you just haven't found them yet. That's really hard. And yet, God's with you. Share that with God. Keep looking for friends. Be a friend to someone else. Maybe you have no idea. Graduation is coming down the pipe, staring at you like a gun in the face. And people ask you a thousand times, hey, what's next? Uh, what's next? What are you doing? I don't know. I don't know. What's next? Go home for Thanksgiving. What's next? I don't know. And you're freaking out. God knows about all those dumb questions you hate answering. God loves the relatives who are going to ask you that. They love you. It's okay. But God knows about that pressure, and he's, he's with you. Tell him about it. You know, maybe, you, okay, maybe you're sold out. You say, yep, I get it. I want to be a blessing this summer. I don't want to waste my summer. But what do you do? Do you do the internship back home? Or do you do something here in Columbia? Maybe you go to Japan for a summer. I don't know. Talk to God about it. He's with you. Whatever your holiday in is, remember Nowhere's exile. There's never a place, never a time where God's not present, where God doesn't want to come and be with you. He says, come on, come to dinner. As, as the worship team comes up, here's what I want us to do. I just want you to wherever, right now, just close your eyes. And imagine
Imagine God is standing at your door. You're hanging your head. You're ashamed. You hand him that baseball card, whatever it is. You try and shut the door, but you can't. And you look up, and you see that he's holding the door open. You look up in his eyes, and he looks right back at you. And this is what he says. He says, you're always welcome at my house. You'll always have a spot at my table. Your apathy towards your sin, it's not a problem for me. I'm going to change your heart. Your sin, your sin in that basement is not too disgusting for me. I'm going to cleanse it. I'm going to clean you. See, I sent my own son. I sent Jesus to die for you. I have prepared a place for you at my table. So go. Go out. Go out with the others. Don't blend in, but be a blessing. Do it for me. Never forget, you're always welcome at my house. Let me pray. God, you hold the door open. You look us in the eyes. You tell us we're welcome. We need to hear that. We long to hear that. We thirst for that. We're stupid people. We're restless. We're hardened to our sin. We hide our sin. We need cleansing. We need a new heart. Lord, would you do that for us? Thank you that you've done that for us. You've put your spirit in us. And you're with us. Everywhere is exile, but nowhere is exile. We cling to that. Thank you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name.